0: Speaking basketball podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to episode six of the top forty career list, Cody. I, I feel like we're moving a mile a minute. A second ago, we were talking about Clyde Drexler and the '90s Blazers, and last episode we we got really lost in the sauce on uh, Julius Irving and Kevin Durant, and today. I think I mean, everyone can read the episode name, you know, they know who we're going to talk about. But I was thinking about this episode. And I think today, we are basically talking about, at least in terms of career, and maybe even peak, the two best small players in basketball history. Oh, I like that. And I think
1: the thing that's going to like keep coming back in like the macro level and even the micro level is the fact that they're they're two of the the best smaller players, but they have such dramatically different styles and way to do that. And I'm really excited about getting into into the ways that they differ.
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating. They're incredibly different. I think it makes sense given the kind of History of the rule changes and the way the game has been officiated, the three-point line coming in—that it was that it was harder to have smaller players impact the game at this outlying level in the earlier days of the league. It was truly a big man's league. You know, in the in like the '50s, they would talk about banning players over six foot eight. Sometimes you'd get like the fan letters. You know how fans say, "Are like the three-point shot is ruining the game," or back then it was like, "I don't know about these tall guys; they're too good. Maybe we should not let them play in the league." So it took a while and I think the great small players we've talked about some of them from um, Isaiah Thomas you know Dwayne Wade is on this list there's a lot of great small players, but most of them even going back into the sixties were still like I mean six four you know something like that once you get to six five six six you get to the Michael Jordan sort of you know these guys are six two how tall is chris Paul six six feet i uh,
1: I don't think Chris I think Chris Paul's one of the secret guys that like had his height bumped up a little bit to six feet, but I would be pretty shocked if he actually broke the six foot.
0: You model. so you think barefoot he's like actually under six feet. And it does be making the point. Like these are not tall players yeah, definitely. in the history of basketball. No, definitely not.
1: And you know, I, I like the rule change thing you brought up. I remember one of my favorite things from reading—I don't know what year it came from—but way back in the day, there was like there was a call that was like, "We need to raise the the baskets to like twelve feet high, and that'll take out the uh, uh, how dominant the big man is." And you know, I've always wondered what the league would look like, but ultimately, I think it's a good thing they didn't change the the height of the rim.
0: Yeah, we've we've got a good thing going—ten feet, uh, ninety-four foot long court. So with that all said in the history of the entire sport I'm not sure two guys have done it better these are the two highest ranked guys on this list we are in top 20 territory and cooking for the rest of the way I mean it's just monsters all the rest of the way up the list so today it is Chris Paul and Steph Curry and of course what's interesting about this one is not only are they are not only are they short players and play quote-unquote point guard but as you said they do it in a very different style, and they do it in essentially the same era. Paul is a little older. He comes along a little earlier, but you know, Chris Paul really takes off as a star in 2008. He, he was already good, I think, when he came into the league. I mean, he was great at Wake Forest and came into the league and was good, but it was that 2008 season where he just kicked it into overdrive and hit another level and moved into the MVP candidacy and and Cody I have that season as a strong MVP level season right out of the gate like this is spectacular stuff from Paul his his offensive quickness his agility his burst his second jump his touch around the basket his floater his spin move his ability to navigate screens already with the ball you know you learn more tricks as you get older, and we've certainly seen that in post-prime Paul in the last few years in Phoenix and even Oklahoma City before that, but just athletically and where he was as a player, phenomenal already in 2008.
1: What, that's like two, is that a third year in the NBA that you have him going up that high? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And I think what's really interesting is at that time, the context of, of those those Hornets teams, they they weren't exactly like great for small point guards. Like when you start looking at some of the teams he plays with later in the 2010s, especially like the Rockets when it's like super space ball, and even the Clippers had a bit more spacing. Like Chris Paul had a lot more room to operate in the mid 2010s. But when you go back and watch some of those Hornets games, it's just a lot more it's a lot more crowded in the paint like there's a lot more like uh you know empty sided pick and roll type of action but there's still just kind of like a clumping of players on on the weak side and I think it's really interesting that he's able to to ascend that high right away even in not great spacing for what his kind of play style is
0: I think that's where the athleticism comes in though right where he's he's so quick and so crafty and like everything inside 15 feet has such great touch and little flips and floaters and and his I mentioned that second jump like it's almost impossible to watch a key game or highlights from 2008 and not see him like spinning and bouncing and you know doing these weird things he has a 360 layup I think in the Spurs series against Tim Duncan you just see a ton of that and I think that going back to Isaiah Thomas helps offset sort of the lack of spacing that you're talking about this the league is bigger It almost didn't matter for him back in 2008. I do remember comparing him to Isaiah Thomas when he came out of Wake Forest, and I think he ended up getting to a higher-quality place with a similar style of play, you know, defensively, he probably peaks higher. We'll talk about that in a second. Cause that's a really interesting question for Paul. I think both in terms of a career value in terms of like looking at his prime in terms of his peak, you can go a lot of different directions and trying to figure out just how good this little six foot dude out there is on defense. And then on offense, I mean, I think he's a very, very good passer overall, but the pick and roll game early on and just learning how to blend that with his scoring coming off a screen being such a good shooter and saying I'll take this 15 footer in the mid-range or I'll get inside eight feet and get a little scoop shot or a floater along with the pick and roll pa- the pocket pass you know the the skip pass whatever it is this is a guy who is an on-ball quarterback maestro and to your thing about like that was his third year in new orleans yeah but the hornets exploded that year that's why he almost won mvp in that close race they win 56 games or whatever it is uh go to seven games against the spurs in the second round the defending champion spurs in 2008 in the second round and they have like a plus four offense that's driven by this guy kind of kicking it out to, you know, Pejostoyakovich has a great shooting bounce back year because he gets to play next to Chris Paul. Morris Peterson's there. Uh, and then he's playing pick and pop a lot with someone like David West, fill in Tyson Chandler as a lob threat and a defender. And you have a nice team where you put Paul as the centerpiece and like, they were really good.
1: So I think what's really interesting, there's a, there's a couple of strands here that I'm going to try and connect here. So during that time period, right? Darren Williams is with the Jazz. And the Jazz make it to the Western Conference Finals. And there was a legitimate, I don't know how, how strongly I want to use the word legitimate, but there was a conversation about who is the best point guard in the league. And I feel like those are always the, the two players that were brought up. And I always remember that there were, there were conversations about the best pick and roll players of all time. And it would be like, oh, John Stockton, Steve Nash, this Darren Williams is the second coming of John Stockton, still in Utah. Jerry Sloan is still there. But when you go back and you see the height of all this, first of all, it's really interesting that, like, this Darren Williams-Chris Paul thing was extremely short-lived, and it ended up being Steph Curry that kind of took Darren Williams' a spot in the, the Paul-Williams battle. But but in terms of being, like, a pick-and-roll ball handler, where do you think Chris Paul lands uh, if you were to make a list of the best pick-and-roll ball handlers? Because I feel like he's got a—he's he, got— a pretty good reason to be somewhere near the top, but I also don't know how I separate that and the fact that he played against some of the best, he played with some of the best lob finishers in in their eras, like Tyson Chandler, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan. These are guys that were just like, you just throw it up anywhere around the square and he gets it. So I don't know, what do you think? Is Chris Paul, does he have a case for being the best pick and roll ball handler ever?
0: When you say ball handler, do you mean his handle or do you mean the entire package of scoring playmaking and sort of navigating the different angles and and types of screens you can set in those actions yeah I'm
1: talking about the the whole thing you set up a pick and roll and however you get a basket you get a basket
0: yeah I think he's I think he's up there I think he's very very high you know the short list uh I'm sure I'm gonna forget guys just off the top of my head but we've talked about Nash um I think I think LeBron James is great at it I think for his era Magic Johnson. It was a completely different type of pick and roll, but of course, Magic's ability to put pressure on the rim with his size and then also pass you know, at every angle humanly possible. Think, you know, Magic Johnson, the ball's coming out of the back of his head. So, there aren't too many guys that I would think are automatically ahead of him. Um, there's maybe a couple that I prefer, but he's on the very short list. I don't know if that gets you six guys that you would say are better, or four or five, but for me, he's up. To, we've talked about James Harden last time. I think James Harden's probably in that conversation. So he, he's on the very short list. I think of the best to do it in that style. One big question for me is like, what's the trade-off of Paul's style within that action? Because he typically wants to slow it down. He typically wants to be more conservative. He's he's the guy out there who knows so many things that he's stopping the action and like point you go over there he's like pointing you go over there you come over there now you come set this screen and we know that works we know that leads to good offense but if i'm trying to like split hairs and differentiate between guys at that level i i think i'm gonna take someone like nash who we talked about who's got a little more speed and aggression and kind of adaptive creativity to the action but man i mean paul's right up there for me
1: In your original profile, too, you talk a lot about Chris Paul's conservative style. You you just brought it up here again. And I'm really interested to hear about this because you know talk about players like Magic Johnson, talk about players like Steve Nash, LeBron James. Like these are some some of the more high turnover guys. James Harden, right? Guys that are famous for throwing a lot of turnovers, but they also go for these home run plays. And the value of some of those home run plays really skyrocket their value in these kinds of uh, in these kinds of plays. Essentially, so how much do you think that that conservative style Actually, I don't want to use the word holds back. That sounds too negative. But how much do you think it kind of caps Chris Paul's ability to reach those kind of upper limits of these other creators?
0: I don't know if there's a cap, actually. It's more just I think I think we need to take a step back and understand how almost every criticism sort of or perceived criticism in this series when we're talking about guys at a very high level actually matters to me or comes to be discussed in a series like this or articles or greatest peaks videos or things like that the whole point is different styles can lead to trade-offs that's the whole point so you can have a guy with a style that has a big trade-off who's 10 times better than someone who has a style that doesn't seem to have any big trade-offs because he's just like a brown belt at a bunch of things, but he is not a superhero on the basketball court. He's not impacting the game like Paul is at this level. So the issue with the conservatism is that traditionally people will look at the box score, right? That's how they orient themselves. And they'll look at the things we're talking about. They'll look at the points per game. They'll look at the shooting numbers. They'll look at the assists. They'll watch him play. They'll be like, hey, I don't see what the issue is. This is just fantastic. But the issue is turnovers are really low. So you get traditionally like this assist, high assist to turnover ratio. And the idea is just like we talked about last time with Harden, more production doesn't always equal more value. A higher assist to turnover ratio doesn't always equal more value either. But so that's the, that's kind of the history of talking about like where this conservative style comes from. For me, it's also getting in the nooks and crannies of player value that we've mentioned in this series that are things that aren't measured very well in the box score and tracking data or things like that. So what happens when LeBron can give it up and then cut and go post up immediately? What happens when Nash is in transition and he does something just... improvisation high speed you never see it coming and then all of a sudden he's turning the corner in a in a like a one-on-three and then no look bouncing the ball into the paint to leave it to hang it there so it hangs up in the air no one's around and then Sean Marion comes flying into the picture and scoops it up and dunks it it's like doesn't make sense those plays have mega value and so it's just looking at the little stuff in between, so I don't think it caps anything. I think if Chris Paul shot eighty percent from the mid range and and was down to like you know a quarter turnover per game instead of two, we'd be talking about the best basketball player of all time. like that's how good he is. But I think it's the difference between is Paul the best offensive player or the fifth fifth best offensive player of all time, or is he like? I don't know, a top 15 offensive player of all time. I think that's the, that's the issue in tr- kind of understanding how a player's stats look and his style when you watch him play and thinking about the trade-offs. So it's not about a penalty or a cap or even a criticism. It's just a trade-off in style that to me actually is the difference when you, when you start splitting hairs at this level.
1: I think that's the thing with basketball is any skill that you have and anything that you're good at is going to kind of be a double-edged sword. Like, if you have the sort of build that's going to make you an excellent drop defender, you're probably not going to be a great switching defender. Like, it's just kind of naturally how it works. So like any sort of role that you take, it kind of means that those other roles aren't necessarily going to happen. Now, I want to go all the way back to something you started off with here. You said in 2008, you see him as sort of the strong MVP type of player, right? Now what's really interesting in those in those in those early seasons, Chris Paul got to the rim a little bit more, right? He was a lot better at attacking the rim, but when he starts going forward like especially now with the Suns these last couple seasons, those rim attempts drop and drop and drop and drop and I'm sure that has something to do with preserving his body. It's not like the the Dwayne Wade or the Allen Iversons that are just charging into the to the paint and getting thrown around all the time. Chris Paul seems to be tapering that off a bit. But his mid-range game becomes just so much more dialed in like ridiculous i I think we've talked about it there might be an enhanced pod segment somewhere on youtube where we talk about how ridiculous chris Paul's shooting is across like a 500 game sample but when you start bringing in that mid-range game and you're taking away some of those rim attempts do you think that that 08 season is probably chris paul's peak or do you see him actually being better in the clippers days
0: I, I, it's a valid question. Okay, so let's, I think we need to start there. Like, it's really interesting because it's a valid question. I think the spirit of your question is focusing on offense, and I would take uh, New Orleans Chris Paul on offense. I don't think it would be by a landslide, and I think maybe you could talk me into arguments the other way, but I feel more comfortable saying just on offense the things you're talking about the the mid-range game versus getting to the rim I think I would take 2008 a huge part of that is injuries I don't want to get too stuck up on the big physical changes in his body because there's injuries later on when we get to the clippers in a second that we'll discuss but you know 2008 2009 Chris Paul is a different beast than 2012 and on where you you lose some of the quickness you lose some of the burst I think it was a meniscus I'm trying to even remember all the details of of what happened in 2010 and 2011 but it was it was a big thing along with him getting a little bit older uh, and then adding more weight he was always kind of like a bowling ball the way he was built Uh, but just getting a little slower and being like I'm going to be sturdier and and don't quite have that vertical pop that I if you don't remember Chris Paul, this little guy we're talking about, he could throw it down on you. Didn't he have an incredibly famous dunk on Dwight Howard in like 2008 or 2009 when when Dwight Howard was you know at or around defensive player of the year levels? So that's the shift in athleticism. I still think that gives me a better option in 2008. Defensively, Cody, can we talk about his? De- I mean, his defense is the thing to me that I really want to do a deep dive. On to kind of reorient myself because I haven't looked at it in a few years. You know, the spirit of this update is players that we've done new work on in the last few seasons, like with Greatest Peaks or other historical series, and the current players. And that means for someone like Chris Paul, I haven't had time yet. He's like on, he's at the top of my to do list to be like, oh, I've got all this film I want to go through. Uh, what happens when I spend a week going through Chris Paul's defensive film. I'm probably going to have better clarity on it. Will I be slightly lower than what I think is a reasonable assessment? Will I be slightly higher? You never know when you go in, but usually there's a little change. And the thing that's so fascinating about his defense to me is, I mean, doesn't he average like, Three and a half steals a game, or something. It's like he's so quick with his hands, but he's also a very cerebral player. So you can see him plugging in to off ball, like weak side actions or schemes that require off ball attention. Um, I was looking up something before we recorded this morning, didn't have time to pour over 20 2008 New Orleans games. And when we did our conference finals historical series, they didn't really come up. You know, Chris Paul famously didn't make a conference finals for a very long time. So I I was looking for something. I open up this YouTube video that's like bookmarked on where I was last watching the game four years ago, right? It's like stores my history. And it's in the first quarter of the second quarter, maybe of a 2008 playoff game between New Orleans and San Antonio, that great seven game series. The first play that comes up the Spurs are just trying to throw it into like Tim Duncan in the post. We've talked about this with Isaiah Thomas, where Paul is guarding the entry pass and then sagging back off, kind of like stunting, like jumping toward his man and then sagging back off to intercept the entry pass. Only this time he doesn't intercept the bounce pass as it arrives. It's not a bounce pass. It's like a chest pass and he sticks his hand out in the air and catches the ball and then just starts going the other way. Like he has stick on his hands, like a wide receiver And I was like, man, I watched a few more possessions because I was just completely enchanted at that point. Um, I was was in a Bill Walton level daze. I was like, what's going on? But if this is a player that is like a really strong all defensive league guard level player, and it turns out the offensive upside that we're talking about is like, you know, top 10-ish, top 12 all time as an offensive player, whatever it is. I actually think your overall peak is past strong MVP. I think your overall peak is in the all-time band. Like, if you stuck that player in greatest peaks, he would be, like, in the top six, the top five. I mean, just ridiculous peak player. And if you're curious, I've heard people ask, like, Paul was one of the last cuts for that series. It just is an enormous series, and I wanted to do a handful more players, and he was earmarked. And at the end of it, I was like, I, I think I'm safer and better off doing some other guys that I feel a little bit more comfortable about. But the defense to me is the real question mark for just, we can talk about the Clippers in a second, but just like how good is that New Orleans peak? How good is he defensively? I don't know. He's a positive. His adjusted plus minus numbers back then on defense weren't very good. They were like around average. He's got these big steal numbers, but you watch him play. It's hard for me to think of a guy like that as a negative on defense, despite being so small and having no rim protection.
1: Yeah, this is a guy that led the league in steals per game. I think six times, right around like the the two and six, a half. Six or, times, six times, Ben. <laughs> six times, and like you said, there's kind of like he kind of has this like Larry Bird psychic ability on defense. I think it was in your your breakdown of the the Suns Warriors matchup in the most recent NBA season, he has this one steal where he's running to the corner and somebody's throwing a pass to the corner. He's looking the wrong direction. He just throws his hands up and gets the steal that way. So this is the guy that just like kind of knows where the ball is all the time and has that just awareness of where everything is. And then, of course, in those younger days, which I think is also shown in his defensive rebounding numbers, is this is a guy with a pretty big motor. Like He was able to get around the court pretty well. And he was, I don't know, he made a lot of plays that just showed him Constantly going for it, constantly running around and trying to make that sort of advantage.
0: Um, but I think that's more. I think that's more prevalent in the younger days. Don't yeah. You, though? Oh, definitely. I like think, in the Hornets days. Yeah, I think he loses that once you get to Clippers. Paul. I think that's that's something. He becomes. You know, we're talking about conservatism with passing. He becomes a conservationalist when I think it comes to his energy. Kind of once he gets closer, uh, or or too los angeles and then ages you had another thing that you're going to say though
1: yeah what's really interesting though is we're talking about this in in the the hornets context the fact that he probably had this higher motor but if you look at defensive rapm numbers like three year stretches starting from like 2012 to 2022 so these are like individual three-year chunks starting from there this is the clip this is with the the clippers though. this is the clippers and even like some of the suns right Paul has six top 20 finishes and yeah. one top 10 finish. And this isn't adjusting for positions. This is in the league, like yeah. six top 20 finishes and one top 10 finish. So if you look at some of these, these numbers, they paint him as Chris Paul's possibly being like a top 15 defensive player in the NBA. And to your point, if you combine that with this, this level of offense that we're talking about, that maybe is just a little bit low, lower in the Hornets days, we're talking about an all-time level player, Ben. So, what do you, you think is going on? Do you actually see Chris Paul, especially with the Clippers, being a top 15 player defensively in the league?
0: I don't know if I go that high. But I, I as I said, I do want to do a deep dive and revisit this. But I think what happens with the Clippers is he gets stronger. He gets sturdier. You know, the famous one is switching on to Kevin Durant and, and kind of pushing him off his block. And Cody's rolling his eyes because if you actually watch those possessions, it's like, okay, it was a mixed bag. Um, but just in general, he's just gets feistier right like like Chris Paul was always feisty going back to Wake Forest there 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 was an incident at Wake Forest that involved another player and 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 a hit below the belt and you know things of that things of that nature um so he's always been really feisty but I feel like that build and that strength and that guile and, and still has the quick hands and still making all these little instinctive basketball plays, these great basketball plays, I think they really come out with the Clippers. So the question to me is like, one, is that better than where he was in New Orleans? It seems to be, I think so. And then two, how much better? Like, are we, Can we have a conversation about the great guard? defenders ever and include Chris Paul I don't know but it seems like it seems like it's in play and it to your point when you combine those things I mean I do have him evaluated right now just as a very good point guard defender but even just you know the difference between that and upticking it into like you're not quite Jason Kidd but you know you're you're something really close or Gary Payton or something like that combined with the offense Cody my my big takeaway here and I've thought this for a while, is that Chris Paul is kind of like, like short Kevin Garnett.
1: Short Kevin Garnett.
0: He's short Kevin Garnett. Yeah, yeah. He's, he was absolutely ridiculed for playoff failures, never making a conference finals. In his case, it was a number of you know notable disappointments, right? Like, why did they keep falling off? Why did they keep choking? Um, I think the only—you tell me if I'm wrong— I think the only real big one that I remember that stands out is against Oklahoma city where they game five or whatever, where they, I think it's two thousand two thousand fourteen, 2014, right. And they're on the road and it's game five and they're ahead by like five in the final minute or something. And I, th- I can't remember if Durant makes a three out of the corner. I know Westbrook has a bucket in there. And then in the final seconds, Paul gets it back. And then, like, tries to do the drawing a shooting foul in the backcourt, but he gets stripped. And okay, so, and it's just like a, it's like an epic meltdown that they end up somehow losing this game where 99% of the time you win. Other than that, there's just a lot of injuries. There's just a lot of crazy things happening in his career that led to that reputation. But much like, much like Garnett, you have a player who is a monster in the box score, just like a comical, like top what would you say, top 15 or top 10 player of all time in the box score? I mean, in our runs, his box plus minus and offensive box plus minus, they're all in you know the 99th percentile um, throughout his entire career in the regular season and the postseason. You might argue that his postseason numbers are better than his regular season numbers despite this reputation. His plus minus kind of like scoreboard numbers, when you look at those, those are at the top of the league. Those are fantastic in the regular season Spoiler alert! They're also amazing, and they're in the 99th percentile in the playoffs and things like that. And even if you look at something like what happens at a game level when he misses time and his teams miss uh, his teams play with and without him, that's the only one maybe where it's not like this is one of the greatest players of all time. But those are still great too. You know, you're talking about teams in even the Houston team we talked about with James Harden that 2018 2019 team. I mean, they were like a 50 win team when Paul was out. And a 64 win team when when Paul was in, um, you know the Clippers have similar results. Where I think there's one one year, maybe 2014. I think they play very similarly without him when he misses 19 games. But the rest of the time, we're talking about a guy who, like, 2017, he misses time, they go from, like, a 42-win team to a 59-win team. Or 2013, he misses time, they go from a 51-win team to a 60-win team. So you consistently see this signal of, like, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. And then I think his reputation on a lot of lists is how can you how can you have Chris Paul in the top 15 or 20 of all time? Like like how can you do that? Uh we've talked about other ranking publications in this series. USA today's 75 last year had him at 39th. ESPN's 76 had him yeah Co- Cody Cody are you going to be okay on that one? 39th then. Thir- Come on. 39th? 39th? Uh ESPN's 76 had him 29th. Uh Slam in 2018 they haven't updated that. They had him 35th. So you would think that might be higher. Uh, and then I don't think, I believe, uh, Bill Simmons has done some updates on the old book of basketball that we've talked about. I don't think he's in the top 25 there either. So, you know, that's where, that's where the tall Kevin Garnett thing comes in because I think you have a player who has the profile of someone who would be set up historically to be really, really underrated by the kind of losing bias stuff that we talk about where his team keeps losing and then you keep blaming him. And then you go, yeah, like he's really good, but I got to downgrade him at every possible stage. And that means the flip side is really interesting to me, which is like, man, if Chris Paul was that good in 2008 and 2009, and then when he comes back and he gets healthy again, he plays with the Clippers, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Then he goes to uh, Houston and we should just mention those years with the clippers for me those are mvp level years uh 2000 certainly 2013 2014 2015 2017 he misses a ton of time i think you could quibble with it either way but that's right there so you're talking about a guy with like you know multiple mvp level years and then he goes to houston and 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 what is he in houston like at worst an all nba player like a top 15 player in the league i don't know that's like a that's over a decade now we're talking about of dominance so that's my small that's my short kevin garnett theory
1: I really like that theory. I'm, I'm a fan of that. Something you said though that I want to I want to say stronger than you said is I think you made a claim that his num- he might look better in the playoffs in the regular season. I don't think there's a might. I think especially in those Clippers days, like Chris Paul's numbers are significantly better. Like his he's he's creating more shots for his teammates. He's more efficient. He's scoring at higher volume. Like this is not a guy that drops off in the playoffs. This is a guy that clearly jumps up. But I think on the the defensive conversation, and this goes back to the the guarding. Kevin Durant thing which is really funny if you go on a deep dive like you can find some videos that are like Chris Paul locking down Kevin Durant but then there's other YouTube videos that are like Kevin Durant exposes Chris Paul's overrated defense (laughs) all right people are having a lot of fun with this but ultimately like Chris Paul's six foot like the difference between him and Kevin Garnett is a foot like a full-blown foot so there's just there's so there's only so much you can do
0: right no you mean, you uh, mean Durant or Garnett Garnett in terms of, like, defense Oh, impact. defensively, yeah, like guarding Durant, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, Chris Paul's tremendous with his hands. He's tremendous off-ball being physical with Durant. I think there's a famous play where Durant's, like, dribbling, and Chris Paul's able to strip him, and he goes down and finishes a fast-break layup. And you watch that, and you're like, oh, Chris Paul's doing a great job. I think Durant ended up, I think it was game four of 2014 that, that that's all specifically happened. Durant's still at 40 that game. I think even in, like, a postgame presser, Durant was like, it wasn't the office that was a problem. Like, Chris Paul was fine, but they were throwing a lot of bodies at me. It had to do with our defense. So, you know, th- this is just like, there's only so much you can do when you're a small player on defense. You can't protect the rim to a certain degree. You can't defend some of these bigger players. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily know where I land on, on the defense either. Whatever you think, like, the highest level small player is, Chris Paul might be flirting with that, but I, I don't know how much that ne- moves the needle.
0: Yeah, I mean again we we're talking about someone who as you said might not might not be 6 feet without his shoes. You mentioned something interesting there which is the scoring numbers and going back to where he ranks as an all-time offensive player, he has that thing that we talked about in the John Stockton episode where it's like you don't realize how good of a scorer they are sometimes. You don't realize these these Guys who are quarterbacks and setting the table for everyone constantly and have these uh, so many offensive possessions running through them where they're really just trying to set the table for someone else and they're really forcing the defense to pick, he can modulate that scoring up. So, for instance, in the 2017 playoff series, they play, he's 28 points per 75 plus six. You know, you don't, th- you know, again, you don't think about like point guards and playmakers getting up there in scoring volume, but when you need to do it, you can. 2015 playoffs, he's 23 plus 10. 2013 playoffs, he's 27 plus 12% in that Memphis series. If if you're new to the series, again, 27 points per 75. It's about how many possessions a player plays in a game. So you can think about him as a 27-point scorer in that series. And then plus 12%, that means his true shooting percentage, his points per shot, his points per scoring attempt, is 12 percentage points better than either league average in the regular season, or in this case, what the Memphis defense surrendered in the regular season. And, the, and those are like, that's a monster number. That's like 99th percentile when you're up at that number. 2011, the series against Los Angeles, where he's kind of like hobbling around like Yoda, but declares, I might, be, I might be coming back. You know, you guys haven't heard from me in a couple of years because of these injuries, but I might be coming back. He's 24 per 75 in that series, plus 16%. 2008, the entire playoffs, 26 points per 75. So this this ability to especially use that pick-and-roll action um, and and just kind of say, if you're not going to play it right, I'm going to pressure you over and over again, was scoring. I don't know if he had that at the highest possible level of, that we've ever seen, but it was extremely high. And I think along with the passing and just the the sort of craftiness and the shot-making, great shooter, is one of the things that makes him one of the best offensive players ever.
1: Okay, so I've, I've been trying to do some math in my head right now because it's, it's finally starting. Dangerous. To hit me. Yeah, it is. Stand dangerous. back. Stand back. Yeah, I need to have like a quill pen. Quill pen. Quill pen. What am I saying? What I'm going I'm <laughs> to keep talking and pretend none of the last ten seconds happened. So you said in 2008, Chris Paul probably has like a strong MVP level season. You also just said pretty recently here that Clippers' days are probably also in the MVP-level range. I'm thinking about that, Ben. That's it's a lot of seasons. Like, does he have an MVP-level season every year between 2008 through his Clipper seasons? And ultimately, like, how many MVP-level seasons do you think Chris Paul had?
0: Well, he has the injuries, man. I mean, that's the problem. So whether it's a playoff injury, like a playoff injury basically kills his 2016 situation. Um... You've got other years where he's probably playing at that level, but he misses like 20 or 30 games in the regular season. So maybe you don't quite make it. So I end up with him as having seven MVP level seasons, which now we're in the top 20. Like that's juicy stuff. Seven MVP level seasons. And then there's other seasons you're talking about. I'm going to say like a handful of the other ones are probably all NBA level. And when you start to consider how good he's been in the last, you know, three four years certainly in phoenix even in oklahoma city playing at an all-star level in my opinion i mean i think we're talking about a guy with like i don't know another what is that another eight or nine all-star years how many years has this man been in the league i think he was an all-star in 2007 and i think he was an all-star in 2022 how about that that's that's pretty incredible that's a, that's a lot of that's a lot of times being in the All-Star conversation. He didn't make the All-Star game in 2007. That could have been because of his team circumstance. It could have been because he was young and there wasn't any cachet associated with him. It could have been because he missed a ton of time in the 2007 season in New Orleans. But I mean, Cody, just in real life, the the official All-Star game that the NBA plays, the man was an All-Star in 2018. He's been an All-Star for the last three years, including 2022. He's made... 12 All-Star games and 11 All-NBA games and uh, 11 All-NBA teams and, and, and nine All-Defensive nine all teams. Um, I, I, it's, it's eerily similar to Garnett because very few people have ever done stuff like this. You know, he, you said he led the league in assists, uh, in steals six times. He led the league in assists five times, including last season at the age of ninety-one. I'm sorry, how old? How, sorry, he's 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 thirty-six. He was thirty-six last season. He turned thirty-seven uh, at the end of the year. But you know, I mentioned his shooting, uh, like 2015 to, to 2022. The man shoots basically ninety percent from the free throw line. We did an entire enhanced pod about his mid-range shooting at being over 50%. Uh it's just it's it's hard for me unless you unless you prioritize something like championships and playoff moments and all that stuff. It's hard for me to not see him in this tier of player.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I'm looking I'm looking at his basketball reference page here. And it looks like he doesn't actually make an all-star team in either Houston seasons, but then he makes it for OKC, Phoenix and Phoenix. D- what do you think about that? Do you have him actually being better in Phoenix and OKC yeah. than Houston?
0: No, no, no. In Houston, he was great. I had some pods about that. You know, the Thinking Basketball podcast was a thing. That's how long this guy's been in the league. Uh, <laughs> it was it was a thing at that point. And I remember talking about that explicitly that I just thought it was so funny that a player of his caliber wasn't on the All-Star team. So um, even when we talk about peak or eight-year prime, the way I have it sized up, I mean, we're talking about a guy that Still right around probably top 20. I mean, the, the injuries are the thing, Cody, right? So this is not just him, but with the Clippers and Blake Griffin and these two guys coming together. 2013, they're playing Memphis. Good Memphis team. I think both the Clippers and Memphis might have won 56 games. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, something like that. They're good teams. Memphis gets to the conference finals. Blake Griffin sprains his ankle. And is basically non-existent for Game Five and Game Six. I think he sprained the ankle in Game Four, or like in practice, or something like that. The series was two-two. Memphis goes on to win the series in 2014. I, I mean, just a little thing called the Donald Sterling situation popped up uh, in the playoffs of all times against against Golden State. Um, you know then they actually win that series and then they go to the OKC series against a great OKC team we talked about how good some of those OKC teams were with Durant and even Westbrook and the other guys around this time 2014 2015 2016 that series is super close that's the one where i think you actually have the on court uh you know situation where it's like wow, i can't believe they didn't win that game 5 i think my jaw still hasn't recovered from coming off the bottom of my couch watching that game back then 2015 They play the beautiful game Spurs coming off their summer of Dirk Nowitzki high, and that team was still good, and it was a seven-game series, and I thought the Clippers were a great team. Paul injures his hamstring, I want to say, in Game 7. I think it was in Game 7, plays the rest of the game, hobbles around, hits that game-winning shot at the end of Game 7 to win the series, and then misses the first two games of the Houston series. And, oh, that's just the series where Josh Smith starts raining threes in Game Six when the Clippers look like they're going to close out the series. Then they outscore, Rockets outscore the Clippers forty to fifteen with James Harden on the bench the entire quarter. Because why would you sub in James Harden when Josh Smith and they went seven of eleven from downtown in that quarter. Two thousand sixteen, Blake Griffin misses like half the season with a partially torn quad tendon. Um, that he suffered, I think, on Christmas Day. Don't forget, Blake broke his hand in an altercation with a staff member that year as well. He comes back in April. Then what happens is Chris Paul breaks his hand in the third quarter of Game 4 against the Trailblazers in the playoffs with the series tied up at two games apiece. They shut Blake Griffin down with a quadricep thing. That's the end of that year. And in 2017, Blake Griffin injures his I think his toe there's like the plantar plate of his toe or something in game three against Utah. The Clippers are up to one. They would win one more game and lose three to the Rudy Gobert jazz and bow out in a tough and, and Paul played very well. The scoring was big except for that seventh game. So that seventh game, he really struggles. So this is the kind of thing that builds up a reputation over time of like, this guy's a choker. This guy's a loser. He can't win with this guy and to me the evidence is essentially pointing almost in the entirely opposite direction but you also have the this crazy injury luck that it's like the cousin of that would be with garnett not only did they have injury luck but they had you know penalty team team penalties losing draft picks players players tragically passing away like yes this we can explain how this could happen because it's very hard to win in the nba especially against the Golden State Warriors and the Houston Rockets and the Oklahoma City Thunder and team like that, teams like that, when like your best players are getting injured in the middle of the series every year.
1: I know that to win a championship, th- there's always some luck involved. Like it's it's annoying to go back and be like, Oh, this player went to win this championship, blah blah blah. Chris Paul might be involved, you you just brought him up here, in like two, maybe the top two most ridiculous, like one out of a million chances in NBA history. The James Harden at the bench will Cory Corey Brewer Mr. 50 point game for Corey Brewer. I know it's not that game, but he had fifty points at the time. Josh Smith leading the comeback. And then in 2018, being a part of the Rockets team that misses 27 threes against the Warriors. Right? I'm not wrong about that. Chris Paul was with the Rockets at that point.
0: Yeah, twenty-seven yeah. in a row, but Chris Paul was Chris Paul wasn't even playing in that game because he injured his own hamstring. I think it was the hamstring in game at the end of game five, so you have no Chris Paul for game six and game seven with the Rockets up 3-2. Uh, I'm contractually obligated to say that Andre Iguodala also was injured in that game. <laughs> uh, they yell at you if you don't mention that. But, like, no, it, it's, it's 27 threes in a row, uh, more injury luck. It's, it's, it's just crazy.
1: But yeah, I, I, I've i been yelled at before with that. People are like, oh, in 2018, Chris Paul's not actually playing at the game. Still, the fact that he's injured and his team misses 27 straight threes without him is just... It, it's unbelievable because both of those seasons, he was on a team that was good enough to win the finals. I thought those were a couple of championship-level teams that could have made it all the way if not for just these absurd, not even coin flip, but like millions of coin flips landing
0: tails situations. Um, We just mentioned... Golden State, one of the guys he was playing against is Steph Curry. These two are compared to each other quite a bit, um, but they play completely different styles. We've talked about Paul's ball-dominant style that extends back to episodes with players like Nash and Stockton. It connects back to a little bit with what we talked about um, with James Harden as well. And Curry's just... Almost a completely different animal, like a nuclear weapon running away from the ball. We've talked about him so much. Uh, both historically, he's been in a lot of historical series, and then here in this 2022 season, as we've as we've made our way through the previous NBA season, the 2022 Warriors championships. I mean, the question at this point, Cody, is like. What what do we even want to talk about when it comes to Steph Curry? I think that's the question.
1: I, I was wondering that when we started because the the amount of times that you and I have fawned over Curry on this podcast is uh, it, it's getting up there at this point.
0: I was like, can we just can we just reference other? Can we just skip the Steph Curry part? Um, Curry, of course, is included here because he's yet another current player who has moved up this list since since uh, it was originally published. And, you know, I think an interesting thing to keep to keep this on the shorter side is for me just to think about what what do you think the biggest criticism of Curry is as his sort of. Prime has unfolded in these last few years with the unanimous MVP, the, the multiple MVP, um, you know, getting, uh, what, they got their fourth championship run this year, finally getting the finals MVP. Like, what, what do you see as the biggest criticism? Because I think I have one or two um, things up here jotted down that might be worth addressing.
1: Biggest criticism that I've, I've heard brought up? I feel like a couple of the things that, like, come up the most are – at least, hopefully, these are silenced now. But, like, Curry, at least, is, at least at this point, can't be the best player on a team that wins a championship. I feel like that was kind of something I heard a lot since 2015. But then also the fact that maybe his performances in the playoffs aren't quite as good as his ridiculous regular season numbers. Those it's probably the two things that I've heard the most about Curry the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, I think that's the biggest one. I think the second, the first one is just—I mean, I don't even know—they <laughs> won a championship in 2015. Um, he was—he was clearly the best player on that team in 2015, I I know. Wait,
1: wait, doesn't the finals MVP go to the best player on the team, Ben?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I think the, (laughs) the more common criticism there is because the Cavs were injured. And then when they came back the next year, they were able to win, but that's also kind of silly to me because you're saying like the, the warriors who also had injury issues, Curry himself coming back off an injury like the Warriors in 2016 you're saying they weren't capable of winning a championship they won 73 games and they lost at the very end of a seventh game in the final round with uh, with a 3-1 lead so I, I just maybe we have different definitions of what it means to be capable it's like the same thing with the 2018 Rockets like clearly that was a championship level team that here here's where you know the easiest definition of capable is if the ball bounces a different way, like once or twice in a basketball game, and that team wins the world championship, that's a championship-level team that's capable of winning, even if they didn't. The, um, the uh, 2012 Bobcats, right? the ball could bounce a million different ways they weren't going to win a championship. Like, like they could get the angels in the outfield guy to come down and and bless every one of their shots, and they weren't going to win a championship. That's the difference. Uh, we're sidetracked. Where were we? The se- the second point, I think about his his playoff performance relative to his regular season performance has more validity. I think that's something that I discussed in his greatest peaks video, and it's it's been a hard thing to evaluate uh, for a lot of years because. 2015, he doesn't have the same level of aggression that he gets in 2016, 2017, 2018, and onward, basically. He's still kind of learning the ropes. The, the Steve Kerr motion, beautiful game system hasn't quite taken hold. And then, of course, in 2017, Durant comes in, and he changes that a little bit when he's on the court, especially in certain playoff matchups where they want to run more, um, not, not just isolation, but like throw it to him in the elbow area so he can score versus throwing it to someone like Draymond Green or Andrew Bogut or whatever in the elbow area so they can pl- pass and allow offense to unfold. There's a difference between throwing it to Bill Walton in the mid or high post and letting these beautiful cutters swirl around him with a bunch of different options and throwing it to Patrick Ewing in like the mid post and being like, Patrick Ewing's going to bang it on the floor a few times and try to score. Very, very different things. So I think that's a more valid criticism because of how complicated – some of the situations have been where you get 2016, you get his injury, he misses the beginning of the playoffs, he comes back right away if you're into like data and plus-minus numbers, that throws his plus-minus numbers for a loop because people look at that and they're like, oh, only like his team was only like six or eight points better with him on the court, but in the regular season they were like 20 points better, some all-time historic numbers. So where's all your gravity? Where's this and that? It's like in the first round they were playing a much easier opponent and that's that makes up the off-court sample, and then in the later rounds they're playing harder opponents, and that makes up the on-court sample. And I've talked about this before in Greatest Peaks. Like if you adjust for that, it changes the numbers. But it's still very complicated because then you get 2017 with Durant. Uh, we'll talk about how well they played together in a second. But in 2018, he's injured again. He's injured again in 2018, and and you know misses time. And how do you evaluate these things in the regular season, and the postseason, and I guess things look pretty good. We gave him like a million conference finals MVPs, but then he gets to the playoffs and he plays the Cavs and the Cavs are in the NBA finals. Even though every year, maybe that 2018, maybe that wasn't a finals quality team that you're used to seeing there. But every year they played the Cavs. They played the Cavs in 15, 16, 17, and 18. Every year, Curry has a down series. So to me, I look at that and I wouldn't say... He's bad in the finals, and I wouldn't say he's bad against elite defenses because he's actually quite good against elite defenses. I think we talked about last time Kevin Durant against elite defenses and how he actually has more of a drop than you would think. Curry's kind of the opposite. He's closer to that Reggie Miller profile. He plays very well against elite defenses in the regular season and the postseason. But Cleveland, not even necessarily an elite defense, they play him in a physical way they they get to see him over and over again they just may play him well it just may be a matchup that he doesn't do particularly well in and so if you look at like his series by series breakdown they actually have this on basketball reference now you can look at the series by series breakdown he has a lot of great playoff series over a lot of years and i loved his 2019 finals as well, even though, again, the numbers weren't off the charts, but the context is like, he didn't have Kevin Durant, he didn't have Clay Thompson for a bunch of this, like, he, I thought he was great in that series. But the other finals, 15, 16, 17, 18, those are consistently down compared to the rest of his series. Maybe he just doesn't do well against Cleveland. So all of this is like a very complex story. And to me, I do think he's a little weaker in the playoffs than the regular season. But I also think that criticism can be overblown when people are just like oh yeah where where's all this impact in the playoffs it's like well the regular season impact you guys have to understand is the hundredth percentile it's like the craziest he's the only modern player to lead the nba in scoring volume and scoring efficiency it doesn't make sense so when you look at all the tracking numbers the plus minus numbers the box score numbers they're literally better than everyone you would never think, like, Curry would be better than Michael Jordan. If I'm picking a regular season all-time offensive season, yeah, there's some others you can make an argument for. But 2016 might have the best argument ever for a single all-time regular season offensive peak. Coming down off of that in the playoffs, it's still very high. I think the numbers are still consistently high. With Reggie Miller, we went through some of those, like, guys who have done 27 points and 7%. He's, Curry has two of them. And people talk about him like he's a choker in the playoffs. He's one of a handful of players like with Kareem and LeBron to ever, ever have two of them. So that's that one to me. I think it is a very interesting thing to discuss because I think there's validity to it. I think it's a complex story. But for me, you just have to remember that he's he's coming from an extremely high starting point. I think we touched
1: on this a little bit during the finals, but something that I still I still think about quite a lot here is you just talked about the fact that the Cavs seem to maybe play Curry pretty well. But ultimately, like besides Matthew Dellavedova, like hospitalizing himself to defend Curry in, in twenty fifteen, <laughs> like I I didn't necessarily think that they had the best personnel to defend Curry. Like, but you know, they were still really physical with him. They were constantly touching him off ball and stuff like that. But this last season, when they're playing the Celtics, like Marcus Smart, Defensive Player of the Year, and they have these other physical defenders, Stephen Curry had a really good finals. Like, yeah. m- maybe, yeah. maybe I'm wrong in saying this. I don't have all of the numbers in front of me, but it felt like it may have been his best finals. I think 2019 was sneakily really good, but this season was really fantastic against a team that was um, exploding defensively in the latter half of the, the season in the playoffs. So when I think about all this, if you take into account, like, playoff successes... How much, I guess I don't want to say, I hate framing things negatively, Ben. It's so hard to frame things not negatively. But how much do you take off from Curry's peak, maybe around 2016, 2017, to where he is now offensively? Because you see him perform now in the finals and you're like, wow, is he really that much different than he was a few years ago when he was an apex level offensive player?
0: Uh I think there there's a decent little drop off, let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean I still think he's one of if not the best offensive players in the game. Um I mean we we talked about that a ton during the season. But I do think at his peak, you're talking about one of the very, very best, like the short list of the very best offensive players to ever do it. We talked about that inner circle group before. I think I've mentioned the the Steve Nash's. We talked about him, um, you know, LeBron James, guys like that. Michael Jordan, of course, uh, Magic Johnson. I might throw in a Mr. Jokic mm-hmm. in Denver, right? Like I just think he's in this like very short list. Of guys, and he's not there anymore, but he's still like, oh, is this could this guy be the best offensive player in basketball? Yeah. And I think when you take the totality of that back, not just through 2015, Cody, but 2014 was a really good season, like a ridiculously good season as well. 2014. Um, 2013 was also a really good season. I feel like in the playoffs that year, that's where he kind of had a bit of a coming out party and announcing, like, this is going to be a legit all NBA level player in the league. And then I think he finds ways to continue to get better. I mean, he just 2015 is like, you know, I should probably shoot more threes. 2016. He's like, you know what I should do? I should probably, I should probably shoot more threes. I don't even need to be near the three point line to shoot threes. So I think there's a, there's a lot of, to your, maybe to your point, high level MVP seasons dating back, you know, we're in 2022 now. Um, This goes back to 2015. So he's got, longevity but it's not the same type of longevity as the players ahead of them there's there's two quick things I want to address on the overall team quality because I've heard that as part of the criticisms of him in the playoffs and I've seen people ask you know wonder what is it that I'm what kind of Kool-Aid am I drinking on this if if Curry's disappointing and you don't see the Warriors at the same like playoff offensive heights as Magic Johnson's teams or LeBron James's teams I think there's a couple really important numbers to understand first of all if we just looked at offensive rating changes with players in the postseason this is plus minus but we're just trying to look at the offensive rating and I by the way I'm not a huge fan of this because offense and defense can go together and you can cheat lineups and things like that but for this for the sake of the point if you just look at those uh Offensive rating changes when a player is going on and off the court in the postseason. What you'll see is you'll see like, uh, you know, some James Harden ridiculous number when he's in Oklahoma City and Houston and things like that. Um, you know, we talked about some of the success he had, but, but, the, but the defense falls apart. You know, like the offensive number is really good, but the defense falls apart. You'll see LeBron James. You'll see LeBron James, specifically uh, later LeBron James, like when he's in Los Angeles or at the end of his um, years in Cleveland. And those teams were good. Like when LeBron was on the court during those years, they were like outscoring teams by eight points per 100. Those teams were good. You'll see someone like Russell Westbrook. Again, the peak years, 2014, 16, 13 in Oklahoma City. These numbers are like plus 14 in offensive rating change. in in on off Um, Steph Curry's right behind them at plus 13. The difference is when Steph Curry is on the court, he's playing with a team that is basically the best playoff team we've ever seen. And you can get more nuanced and quibble a little and be like, well, they were challenged in 2018. They've, they had this little hiccup here and there. Um, you know, maybe the 96 Bulls and the 2001 Lakers, if you look at how opponents played against the teams that they played against in the playoffs, okay, you can make an argument that they're not stone cold locked in as the best team ever. But Curry's like plus 12, plus 13 when he's on the court in the playoffs. During the heart of all these years in Golden State, 2017 to 2019, sometimes when you fold in 2015, uh, Cody, you asked about 2022, this past season, the numbers weren't quite as good. There was still a championship type team, obviously, they won the championship, but it's not this like crazy peak stuff that we're seeing. So to me... I don't know how many people know that, that like, if you still look at the offensive rating changes when he's going in and out of the lineup, not even adjusting for the fact that he's missing these first round series against cupcakes, what you end up having is you end up having a guy who still looks like he's having one of the biggest offensive changes we've met, we've ever measured in this category in the postseason. And the team that when he's on the court, the overall team play like plus 12, plus 13 in the playoffs is almost madness. If you look at um, the best three-year runs in playoff history, using, now you can use, um, you can look at the opponent's regular season offense and defense. Another thing you can do in the playoffs is you can compare how a team performed, as I just said, to the way other teams in the playoffs played against them. If you do either of those, the 2017, 18, 19 Warriors, those are all basically number one. I mean, literally in my database, number one is the 2016 to 2018 Warriors. They're actually better than the 2017 to 2019 Warriors, but that's better than any other three-year run we have going back to 1984. So to me, it's, a, it's one of those things where maybe like with Chris Paul, like with Kevin Garnett, like with Giannis not being able to win and constantly disappointing If you get a story in your head going back to the 2016 finals that there's a disappointment, I think you're missing the actual success that the team is having on the basketball court where it's like, who's playing on the best playoff team ever? Steph Curry. What happens when he goes out of the game? They're not close to the best playoff team ever. How good is the offense? It's just about the best offense we've ever seen. Well, what happens to the offense when Steph Curry goes out of the game? That's only like the fourth or fifth biggest change we've ever seen as well in the playoffs. That, to me, is the reason why... Uh, despite some drop-off, I think, from the absolute regular season heater heights that he was on in the middle of the decade, I still think we're talking about one of the all-time great offensive players.
1: And not to put too fine a point on it, but but comparing both Stephen Curry to Russell Westbrook and LeBron James, I think this is just a clear statistical case for the floor raiser versus ceiling raising comparison because Stephen curry like you just said he can take these teams that are already good like obviously not like all-time level good but take a good team and bring them to the all-time level heights is that what you're describing here
0: yeah and i've also heard people say like well i'm a little confused if you look at say someone we talked about recently and and chris paul today look at paul and harden together you know didn't they have a great offense and a great championship level team well number one their playoff offense actually wasn't that great Mm. That's one thing to keep in mind. But number two, when we look at the, like, what happens when they go in and out of the game, um, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but it's something like when Harden's in the game, the offense is fantastic. It's like plus... uh, the, The team, just forget the offense. The overall team powered by the offense is like plus nine. And when Paul's in the game and Paul played bench units, I think it's even better. I think it's plus 10. When you put them both in the game together, it goes to like plus 12 or 13, And so that's fantastic, but the whole idea is one of these guys is getting you very high. The other guy is getting you very high. When you put them together, you don't get this greater than the sum of the parts thing because they are both on-ball players. With Curry and Durant, and Durant is like a hybrid. He's not even primarily an on-ball player. What you saw with Curry and Durant is when Durant was on the court in Golden State, they were like, again, just go rough numbers off the top of my head. They were like plus two. And when Curry was on the court, they were like plus 12. And when Curry and Durant were on the court together, they were like plus 16 or plus 17. Just numbers you'd never seen ever, ever before. So it's a different looking kind of pattern when you're pairing it with other players than what you get with ball-dominant players. And I think that's part of the reason why no matter what iteration of like who was in the lineup, who was out of the lineup you run in Golden State, you get this like absolute impact from Curry whether he was making the team a 55-win team from like 35 wins, or in the case of Durant, when Durant played without Curry, you would have stuff like, I don't know, they were a 40-win team without Curry, and then with Durant, they were a 64-win team. Or I think Durant misses time in the 2017 season. Let me see here. Yeah, 2017 and 2018, they played 27 games Without Durant, but with Curry, they play those 27 games at a 71-win pace. You heard that. Without Kevin Durant, they played at a 71-win pace. That was coming off the 2016 season, where they played at a 73-win pace. And when you remove Curry from that equation, still a very good team, but the ability to hit those heights to me is this idea of like carrying value and scaling at the max. And, and you asked with the, in the Reggie Miller episode a couple episodes ago, is he the best off-ball player? I think Curry is probably the best off-ball player ever because of the ability to carry that value through like an entire course of a possession, especially when he's not touching the basketball. I think what what separates
1: Curry from like anyone else, especially like Reggie Miller, and we talked a little bit about how Reggie Miller is actually pretty solid on ball. He's just not somebody that's going to pound the rock and create for other people. But when it comes to scoring on the ball, he's pretty good. But Steph Curry blends this where he's, like you just said, probably the best off-ball player ever. But then if that doesn't work, you just give him the ball And he just revolutionizes the the pull-up jumper, right? He revolutionizes the pull-up three. And I think it's really interesting because if you were to think of like the best pick and roll players of all time, we talked about this with Chris Paul, Stephen Curry weirdly might be somewhere in the conversation. I'm not saying he's competing for the top, but he's at least like in the conversation because his ability to score off that pull-up jumper and to get into the paint and just cause havoc that way. Because if you think about it in terms of in terms of the entire possession, right? He can make something happen out of the pick and roll and then relocate and and cause something else to happen there. So when you bring in that whole package, the pick and roll looks a lot different than Chris Paul, but it's still extraordinarily effective.
0: I think the, the question with going lower on Curry is not just some of the durability things and some of the things with his playoff numbers dropping a little bit and things like that, but it's his defense and... I've always liked his defense in terms of awareness, activity, motor, um, good hands, kind of playing in a system, high IQ, those kinds of terms. And this year we did a piece on the Warriors defense, and you can see how communicative he is, how aware he is of what they're trying to do at all times. But I do think he improved defensively. By adding weight and getting more physical. And so, the, you know, the question is can you make a case for him as a negative defender in the heart of these years where we're talking about having all this offensive all time level juice? I don't know. Maybe you could. Um, if you kind of go on the negative side for me and you also don't give him all the benefit of the doubt for the offensive kind of stuff we've talked about. I, I, because he hasn't played that long, you know, because he still hasn't added a couple more extra post prime years or end of his prime years. And because he missed a year with the ankle stuff and it kind of took him a while to get going. I still think you could see Curry around like the low end for me, probably take some 22, 23 ish, right around that Steve Nash, John Stockton group that we talked about. Maybe if you go low the high end, because he hasn't played too many years, The high end for me takes Steph Curry up to 13th Hmm. all time on this best careers list. I do, because of the peak I've talked about, talked about it in Greatest Peaks, I do have his eight-year prime a little bit higher now. I do have his eight-year prime, I think about 10th. Hmm. I think he's around top 10 all time in that prime, heart of prime, eight-year stretch. Paul's a little different. Paul's played forever. And so the questions we talked about earlier with Paul, where it's like, all right, what if his defense is actually like ridiculously good? Um, what if the face value of all, some of these numbers is all spot on? You know, some of these box score numbers or even some of his plus minus. Like, if he's really that good as a 2 white player and you add a little of that value to each of the prime seasons that he has, Cody, I think I can all, go all the way up to number 10 all time Ten with Chris Paul number 10. Chris Paul has an outside chance of being a top 10 career player, right? That's right. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think the low end for Paul, because of what I just said, he's played a little longer, brings him a little lower than Curry's low end. You're talking, you know, could I get him behind Nash and Stockton in that 23, 24 range? Maybe, maybe something like that. But I do think at least for me today, and I I might feel differently in a year or two, uh, there's a pretty wide, fascinating range that I still haven't completely wrapped my head around with Chris Paul. Last time we left off, we had, uh, we just mentioned John Stockton at 24, Steve Nash at 23, Charles Barkley at 22. We had a nice Patreon, extra. we had a quick, quick chat for Patreon extras on Charles Barkley um, and what, we're, what we've been thinking about him recently. Kevin Durant was 21 on the list. Julius Irving was 20. Of course, the actual number means a lot less to me than trying to corral the range and understand the dynamics that we've discussed in each of these episodes. Number 19, David Robinson. We just did a deep dive on Greatest Peaks. I don't have anything new to discuss with him. Um, so David Robinson, we'll leave alone. If anyone has any questions about him, we could take it in a Patreon extra. But David Robinson at 19. Jerry West at number 18. And we're going to come back to Jerry West, I think. I want to talk more about Jerry West, but he needs to be set aside for his own hour. We need a Jerry West hour on this podcast. I, I have Chris Paul. These guys are all very close, by the way, this this next group we're talking about. I have Chris Paul at 17 and Steph Curry 16. He could almost go either way. Cody, anything else you want to say about these two guys before we get out
1: yeah of we talked about i think with chris paul you said the certain number of like strong mvp level seasons he had uh stephen curry's had an all-time level peak right like he's in that all-time band at a certain point
0: i think he was pretty high up there in greatest peaks i can't remember but yeah yeah he's got some all-time seasons how, yep. yeah that's a, that's what i want to ask how many
1: of those all-time level seasons do you have for him
0: i'm gonna say let's i really well if you include health. If you include health, to me, it's really only 2016 and 2017 hitting that all-time band. Mm. Now, if you if you look at 2018 and you kind of don't worry about the health, there could I include that season? Yeah, I could include 2018 as well. But I would say it's something like that, and then all the peripheral seasons are like very nice, strong MVP seasons: 2015, 2019. 2021, which was also a fantastic season, um, and 2022. Man, we are just, these guys we're going to be talking about, it's just like they had 10
1: strong MVP level seasons. So there's no, no more of the like Reggie Millers. It's like he put together a nice
0: 16-year run of all NBA. Nope, we're, we are now with the megastars. And the last thing I'll say there is it just kind of, to me, shows you how hard it is from this from this perspective of this exercise, like adding career mileage, you know, the total, who's who's got the most mileage out of their career value where once you get into the top 15 or top, top 12 or top nine, it's just like, it's so incredible how good these guys have been and that little gap that they have over the league that actually creates more value in an MVP level season compared to an all-star level season. Like an all-star level season might be three of these strong Steph Curry MVP seasons and then you do that for eight years Cody or 10 years it's just like solar systems drifting apart where like the inner the inner stuff that's all close together like all those players they're still kind of close but the superstars out on the edge of this celestial body uh yeah we've got we've got some great guys to wrap up this series in the next few episodes when we get into the top 15 and then the top 10. I think I'm I don't want
1: to say I'm most excited about anyone, but uh, I think there's some real takes to be had about Jerry West coming up.
0: Jerry West will be... Uh, next episode, we'll talk about him and Oscar Robertson. If you want to check out some of those Patreon extras that we discuss, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. It's also just the best way to support this podcast, along with leaving a a nice review on wherever you listen to podcasts and rating the show and things like that. That always helps. Um, you know, hope, hopefully it's a nice review. If you've made it this far, maybe you've been yelling at your podcast for the last hour and change. And, um, maybe then don't, don't leave a review. I take back my idea, uh, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have additional content. We have a lot of the historical stats that we've discussed. We have a community. We do a live Q and a and more thanks as always for listening all the way through on this one hope you've hope you've been enjoying this series as much as we are enjoying going back through history and bantering about on these players and as always i hope you are having a great day